Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth podcast. It is Tuesday. I have no idea what the date is. It's sometime in February 2020. I am snowed in in Santa Fe. I was supposed to be on the road this morning, and uh, we woke up to a nice uh, nice little pile of snow on everything, and the roads are bad. I'm watching people go by my house sideways, so uh, we're going to try to back it off for a day. We've got a major, major cold front following this. It's going to be about 8 or 10 degrees tomorrow morning, so... I'm already cold, foreshadowing cold for how bad it's going to be tomorrow morning. But um, I have an amazing week here for the podcast. I have a lot of topics that I want to get to. Uh, We're going to start out like normal with our hero. And this week's hero is Sana Marin, or Sana Marin. I don't know how to pronounce her name uh, exactly. It's S-A-N-N-A-M-A-R-I-N. She is the Prime Minister of Finland, and she is 34 years old. So let me just restate that. She's the new prime minister of Finland, and she's 34 years old. When I look at what's happening in American politics, and I see these very, very elderly, detached, completely politicized individuals on both sides of the aisle, it just pains me. And I keep asking myself, where is everyone under 40? Why do we not have a prime minister like that? And if you look at what's happening in in Iceland and New Zealand, they've also uh, uh, elected young women. And uh, in Finland, there are five political parties, and all of them are headed by women, and four of them are in their 30s. And when I look at what they're doing in Iceland and Finland and New Zealand and a lot of other countries around the world, and I look at their plans for the future and their depoliticizing uh, of everyday aspects of being in the government, it is remarkable how much more advanced they are than, than what we are here. Our system is completely and utterly broken, as evidenced by what's been transpiring over the past couple of weeks. Uh, it's, it's just so disgusting to see what's happening here. And when I look out at other parts of the world and I think, wow, I mean, even having a carbon neutrality plan for the future, which of course goes against extraction. So we're never going to have anything like that here. Uh, but to see people working together. So five political parties who I'm sure have very divergent views on things, but yet working together to come together with a plan. And again, I've seen this in Iceland. The day after the prime minister was elected in Iceland, there's a photograph of her with the two people that she defeated, and they're all three sitting in a room. And first of all, they're dressed like super hip Europeans, right? I mean, let's face it. Iceland, they got they got style. Finland has style. New Zealand has style. And so their, their politicians dress like normal people and talk like normal people. And she, the woman in Iceland, was meeting with the two people that she had defeated to say, look, they had good ideas and we're all going to have to work together if Iceland's going to be a good place. And that just is, it, as an American, that is mind-boggling. So I'm jealous. That's our hero for the week. Okay. I want to hit on a little bit of photography here before I hit some a little time a little bit on politics. Something that happened uh, also when the Iranians sent missiles into Iraq, uh, and I've got a couple of things. But in, I, I want the first point I want to make is in keeping with our hero of the week. I realized uh, last week I have a new boss at Blurb, and I've been working for Blurb now for around ten years. But I was around the company even going back to 2007, both on the advisory board and part time. So. Uh, I've actually been around longer than 10 years, but I realized that I don't think I've ever worked for a man. I think I've only worked for women at Blurb over my entire career. And I have to say, it's great. I don't even know what it would be like to work for a male boss. I much prefer to work for women. I think uh, 
the marketing department at Blurb is, is a lot of women as well. And it's always been that way. And I absolutely love it. I can't imagine any other, any other way. So I'm not really sure why that is, but it's, it's been that way. So anyway, I have a new boss. She's awesome. She has a plan. Um, it's going to be fun to see what happens over the next, uh, for the immediate future here at Blurb. So all right, moving on. There's a couple of photography points I want to make. So we had our Hero of the Week. The second, first point of this uh, this week's broadcast was uh, working for women, which is great. So I'm not sure how many of you out there work for women, but uh, I found it very rewarding over the years. Um, my next point is about photography. And there's a lot of talk about photography, obviously, especially online. There's a massive online photo communities in regards to amateurs, prosumers, professionals, etc. And last week, I looked at a variety of different portfolios, not because I wanted to look at portfolios, but because I was just in a position where people were walking up and they had portfolios and I would get introduced and they'd say, oh, would you look at my work? And I, was, I'm always, I always try to be nice and, I'm, and I say, of course, I'll look at your work. And then <clears throat> one of two things happens. They either hand, hand me a printed piece and I go, oh, cool, they took the time to print or they hand me an iPad. And I frankly do, I never like looking at work on an iPad because it never ends well. And there's a reason for that is because you don't put the same thought typically into your work in the digital space that you will in the print space, because in the print space, you're having to pay for it. So you have to choose a cover image. You have to choose a sequence. You have to make an edit. You're paying for every page. So you're like, mm, is this good enough? Is it really going to make it? There tends to be more thought. And when I ask people about their work, people who have a printed piece, they have a much better uh, chance of being able to tell me why they included specific images or why they sequenced it in a way or why the particular image made the book. And with digital, a lot of times people don't have any explanation whatsoever. And last week, the, por the portfolios that I saw on the iPads, it was there were way, way, way too many images in the galleries. There were galleries that had 100 photographs, and they were all like perfectly exposed, perfectly cropped. Per everything was done perfectly. They just had absolutely no soul whatsoever. I could not tell from person to person who had made any of the images. And the images were all the kind of things that you see on social and all the things that you see in commercial and advertising photography. It was incredibly boring. And these were successful people who'd traveled all over the world and done shoots and projects and for, for corporate clients and commercial clients. And I just, I was so bored within two seconds of looking at this work that I, it was just, a, it was a battle to be polite. And again, I'm not attacking these people. Uh, what I'm attacking is the idea behind what ends up in your portfolio. And here's the thing. The single most important thing that you can do as a photographer, write this down, the most important thing, if you accomplish one thing as a photographer, this is it, and that is to make original work. Making original work. That's it. That's what we're all after. And what's happening now when I look at portfolios is 99% of the portfolios are work that the photographer has already seen done and they're copying it. And now my generation of photographer, that was a huge no-no. You would never look at someone else's work and say, I'm going to go shoot that exact photograph and put it in my portfolio. That happens all the time now. That's completely routine. I've talked to many photographers who literally admitted that that's what they were doing. And they admitted it without any shame or questioning of that idea in, at all. And it's just astounding to me that someone would do that because if you've already seen it, it's already been done. So why would you want to go and do that? But people are chasing the market, they're chasing the likes, they're chasing audience, etc. Just remember, the single most important thing you can do is make original work. When you see a photographer who can create original work, it stands out immediately. And here's the, here's the rub, too, if you're trying to make a living at this. Unique work, original content, that comes with a price tag. 
because if if Mary is the only person who can make that work, I can't undermine Mary by going to some hack who'll do it for 10% of the price. So you go, wow, if we want that work, we have to go to Mary. And Mary holds the cards now. And so Mary can say, oh, you want my work? It's X amount. Or you have to license it for X amount, blah, blah, blah. You hold the keys. If your work looks like everyone else's content, you have no bargaining power whatsoever. So just think about that. Making unique work is absolutely critical. Now, secondary point, this is going to be point three of the week, is a little bit of following up with another uh, photography idea here, which is I heard someone, and I'm looking this up on my little notes here, I heard a photographer the other day that um, was saying that what's the point of making work if you don't share it? And I'm looking this up. Where is it? Uh, Let's see here. Liberal hack. No, that's it. What's the point? Oh, yeah. What's the point of photography if you don't get seen? Okay, please, please, for the love of God, do not listen to these people. Anyone who tells you that there's no reason to make photographs unless you get those photographs seen is completely and utterly unhinged and is off their rocker and is amazingly egotistical and amazingly insecure and has no idea what they're talking about. Because I'm going to take you back a little little bit in history. When the, when documentary photography started and 35mm photography started, there were no galleries. There were no museums showing that. There were no outlets. There were no magazines for people to use. And so what these idiots in the modern era are telling people, oh, you have, if you, unless you get your work seen, it doesn't mean anything, they're clueless. They have no idea because their ego and insecurity is driving everything that's pushing them out there. Walking around with a camera and making pictures for the sake of making pictures is one of the best things I think that you can do as a creative or visual human being. I don't need to see those images. I don't need for you to tell me that they're great. I don't need to have people look at that. 99% of what I shoot, no one ever sees. And I absolutely love doing it. It's educational. It's informational. It helps me better understand the world. And I have absolutely no interest in sharing that stuff. That is just a, anytime I hear that, it just makes my skin crawl because I would love to sit down with this person and educate themselves, educate them about what it means to make photographs. And it doesn't mean the same thing to every person. So if you're out there and you're what I call a grinder and you're grinding through your daily life with a camera on your shoulder and you're making a random picture here and there, that is completely and utterly fine. There is no reason to blog it. There's no reason to put it on social. There's no reason to build a website around it. There's no reason to tell everyone you did it. And there's certainly no reason to share it or get it seen. That is a ridiculous modern era sentiment that comes from people who are so wound up in things like social media, they can't see straight anymore. So don't fall for that stuff. Okay, moving on. Point number four is about Stephen King. I'm I'm sure you've heard. And again, I told you guys this. I'm going to harp on the social media thing every single week until every single person on this podcast is no longer on social media. So the the story about Facebook this week is Stephen King saying, I'm going to quit Facebook. But here's the thing. I'm not giving Stephen King any credit whatsoever because why the hell were you on Facebook up until this long? With everything we've known about this company and the parent company, whether it's IG or Facebook, everything we know... You're still on there until this week. So all the lies to Congress, all the anti-Semitic stuff, all the misinformation, all of this that's been going on for over a decade, and he just he just decides to quit now. So I'm sorry, but I'm not giving you any uh, 
I'm not giving you any credit for that whatsoever. I think, uh, Stephen King, you should have been off of Facebook a long, long time ago. And by the way, your book on writing is absolutely fantastic. That's the only book of Stephen King's I've ever read. But Stephen King wrote a book called On Writing that I think is one of the most important, the best books to have if you're going to be a writer. I love it. I've, I've bought, I don't know how many copies and given away tons and tons of them. I love giving that book away. Okay, moving on. Point number four, five, whatever, is about Iraq. And uh, what happened when the U.S. assassinated Soleimani and the subsequent um, salvo of missiles from Iran into the military base in Iraq. So obviously a a colossal mess filled with many, many, many lies from the American uh, administration, from Pompeo and Barr and and Trump, you know, the, the same old story. Um, not to say that Soleimani was not a uh, a bad dude, but um, that whole thing went sideways and, you know, lie after lie after lie coming from the administration. But that's not my point. My point is this. When the first Iraq war started, with, this goes back to the whole uh, bad information about weapons of mass destruction, which, by the way, the Bush administration fully admits that they had bad intel and they went in for bad reasons. That's something that whatever my Republican friends seem to ignore is that that, that entire administration cops to the fact that they made some really bad decisions about why we went into Iraq in the first place. But from the secondary sort of storyline with Iraq was, yes, they have met weapons of mass destruction, but we're also going to bring democracy to the Iraqi people, right? That was sort of what we were we were led to believe and spoon-fed, that was the mission statement, was we're going to bring democracy. Not that they were asking for it, but that that's what Americans, we love to do. We were going to say we're going to democratize X, Y, and Z, and we go in. So, you know, it's we are standing with our Iraqi brothers and sisters, and everything is great, and hunky-dory, and then Iranians send missiles into Iraq. And what was the first statement from the administration? What was the terminology of the first statement, which basically exposes the lie of the whole... democracy debate, which is, quote, no Americans were killed. So you, for 19 years, you've told us that we're, we're together with the Iraqi people. And then the Iranian missiles come in, and the first statement is, oh, there were no Americans harmed. So if that doesn't sort of expose the entire mission for kind of what a fraud of what it was, you know, and it's, and here's the tricky part. Anytime a war like that starts, and I'm no expert on war, but war kickstarts industry, it kickstarts so many different aspects of our culture and society. So I'm not faulting the people that were sent into the countries to do the dirty work and to do the fighting. That's what you sign up for as a soldier and you go and man, I tip my hat because I never went. I never I never even tried to go. I was more fearful of going and being drafted, you know, when I came up and thinking I'm gonna get drafted and end up in Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever. It's a whole different. It's a whole different ballgame. There's a whole group of people out there, thankfully, in the armed services or people who volunteered that stepped up and said, "I'm going in the military and I'll go." Right. So you have to tip your hat to them. They, they don't have a choice. It's not like they're standing around saying, "Gee, I really wish we could invade somewhere in the Middle East." They're told, "Hey, we're going in and you're going first. So tip your hat. But it's the the policymakers and the fact that they can't keep their stories straight. And that's this goes back again whether it's the, the uh, Bush administration or the Obama administration and now the Trump administration, every, the playing field shifts, the terminology shifts, and I just drives me insane when I hear that no Americans were killed instead of, look, there were no casualties in this attack on Iraq in the United States or whatever. That's my point. So you can agree or disagree. It's a free country. So I'm going to move on here, uh, and I, the, I'm going to end this week with another story, a camera story, in um, this week, it's not a particular image I'm going to talk about. And by the way, that's a garbage truck in front of my house making that noise. 
and that's free, free of charge for this podcast. Santa Fe uh, Refuse is trying to destroy my trash can as we speak. Okay. Uh, I want to hit a little bit on politics, but in a way that you might, uh, an angle that you might not expect. So obviously the impeachment ceremony is happening over the past couple of weeks. It is a absolute travesty to our to our culture and society. Um, I haven't really quite seen anything like this in my lifetime. And this is a two-point uh, part. And the first thing I want to talk about is defense lawyers. So there's a lot of people online attacking Trump's defense team, right? And saying, you know, really saying like despicable things about these people. Now, I don't know any of them personally, uh, but I have a story. And I want to preface the story by saying the defense lawyer is a very particular creature, and their job is to lie, cheat, and steal in defense of their client. That's what they do. So if you're being accused of something, you're going to want one. And defense, they may not seem like savory people on the surface, and I don't know what they're doing in their personal life. And yes, it takes a specific kind of person to be able to get up and do do that kind of thing, where they're clearly lying and not telling the truth or going back on something they've already said, but that is their job. Their job is to lie, cheat, and steal for their client and to try to get them off. That's the only thing they do. And sadly, it's a role that we need. And I'll give you a story. So my cousin was killed in Denver uh, in the 90s. He was shot by two gang members from LA. Long story. And um, I was at the trial. And that's the only criminal trial where I had a direct connection to who the person killed and also the first criminal trial that I was able to sit in the courtroom and go through it. And all I can say is, I'm not going to go into all the details, it was wild. I mean, it was so unlike what I was expecting. And there were threats, you know, we were being threatened and they were barring certain people from the courthouse. It was ugly. And I mean, major, major ugliness. Now, the two guys that did the killing, they had left a trail of destruction through the city that was so dramatic. They, the, the, the prosecutors literally traced their movement through the city block by block because they had come into, some, into contact with so many people who were terrified of them or threatened by them that it, you know, they, they were able to build this, uh, this case. But this was also my first time around defense attorneys. And, it was, and I felt simultaneously mystified by them and and sort of freaked out and saddened by them because you know th- their job was to get the case thrown out and so they were not bashful about i don't know sort of inventing narratives you know i saw a family member wearing red and uh, we should m- m- uh, motion to have the case dismissed every day was like case dismissed case dismissed case- they were just tr- anything they possibly could now on the surface as a as a person who's directly related to the deceased I could have looked at these people and said oh you're the scum of, scum of the earth I don't see it that way I see someone who's taken a role an incredibly difficult ugly position to be in because you are you are defending people who have done really horrific things but that's the job so don't get so incredibly down on the the Dershowitzes and the the other folks who are trying to defend the president I'm not saying I like these people. All I'm saying is they have a job to do, and they're good at it, and they're going to lie, cheat, and steal, and do whatever they can to get their clients off. So that's just that's just where we're at here. Um, the second part I want to make about what's happening politically is, uh, and I guess this would be point five, point six, uh, subclause B, uh, for those of you taking notes, is I think I'm intrigued by what's happened, right, with the acquittal in the in the Senate, where the Senate just said, "Look, we we you know here the original story was it was a perfect phone call," and then the Senate, all the Republicans were like, "Well, it wasn't perfect, um, but you know he didn't do any of these things that you said," and then it was okay, he did all these things that you said, 
And then it was, well, he did all these things that you said, and he is guilty, but that's not an impeachable offense. And then it was, well, okay, he did these, and he's guilty, and maybe that's an impeachable offense, but we're going to change the goalposts and say that anything that he did in the greater interest of the public to get reelected, now that's okay. These clowns, the Lindsey Grahams, the Mitch McConnells, they will, they will continue to move those goalposts as much as they possibly need to. And over the next few years, if Trump gets reelected, and it's looking more and more likely that he will, those goalposts are going to move so far off the field that these guys are going to have a really hard time sticking to it. But here's the thing. The Republicans, and I'm going to equate this to, the, uh, to a football analogy here, and congrats to the, uh, to the Kansas City Chiefs for winning the Super Bowl. 50 years, you guys deserve it. Uh, you know, I'm a Saints fan. We lost again. Okay, so what the Republicans just did was they went all in to win the Super Bowl this year, right? So they, they basically, they blew their spending cap they bought an aging player who might be able to help them, and they went all in to win right now. The problem is the teams that do that end up blowing apart, and then they have about an eight-year, 10-year where they're in the basement because they just they salvaged everything for the short-term win. So when I look at the Republicans in the Senate, that is precisely what they did. But what I think they also did is they just, they just started the time bomb. The, they just lit the fuse on the destruction of the Republican Party. Because let's recap a little bit. Trump was never a Republican. He never identified with the party. He looked at that party and said, they're a wreck, they're corrupt enough to get behind me, and they have no one to beat me. And he took over that party in 30 days with a Twitter feed. They're all terrified that Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell are terrified that he will turn that Twitter feed on them. And then they're screwed because their base, Trump's base is, is crazy, and they'll go after who any of these people are. But think about this. So they just hitched their wagon to a guy who never identified with their party, that when things go sideways, and they will, when this blows up and the, and the Trump train goes off the rails, it will come off in epic, epic fashion. And the Lindsey Grahams and the McConnells of the world, they're going to be aged out, but their children and their grandchildren are going to wear that scarlet letter. They're going to wear that E for enabling. And I'm telling you, if your last name's Graham or McConnell or Ryan or Jordan or Grassley or any of these people, and your kids are out at dinner and someone says, oh, your last name's McConnell, any, any uh, connection to Mitch? And you're like, oh, that was my dad or my grandfather. People are going to be pissed. And so it's, it's scary in my mind that these folks are going to wear that scarlet letter for a long time. And I think ultimately in the long run, that really hurts the Republican Party. And look, here's the thing. We only have two parties. And both parties, in my mind, are wildly flawed. Like, there's corruption to the, to the absolute DNA level in both parties. To deny that means you're, you're ignoring facts, and you're ignoring history, and you're rewriting history. There is so much corruption in America, and it's system-wide. It's in education, it's in banking, it's in finance, it's in transportation, it's in extraction, it's in government. We are wildly corrupt, right? There's just no other way to see that. There's too much evidence to, to, uh, as, as, as evidence. So I look at what the Republicans did. They mortgaged everything for the short-term win to get him reelected in 2020. But after that, I think they basically, they're, they're eroding their own party because when he comes off the rails, people are going to look and say, oh my God, you're the guys who basically made sure that he, was, that he stayed here. Because how in three and a half years did the Republicans not come up with someone to run against him? And they didn't, again, because of that Twitter feed. They're terrified. And oh, by the way, millennials who are so down on Twitter, you got to laugh. Like the, Twitter has literally become the single most important political uh, tool in, in, in our country right now. It ain't Instagram and it ain't Facebook. 
it's Twitter. And it's him turning that lens on a fellow, quote unquote, fellow Republican that they're so terrified of. So I think it's fascinating what's happening right now. It's sad because, you know, for me, uh, just environmentally, what this guy has done and will continue to do is so profoundly idiotic. I just don't know how. I mean, look, he overturned the Clean Water Act. So Republicans are poisoning their own kids as we speak, as are Democrats and all the rest of us, because we allowed this clown to turn over the Clean Water Act. It just makes no sense whatsoever. Again, it's about mortgaging the short-term, the long-term safety of our country for short-term profit, because all the people that overturned this this act are all profiting from the fact that they're overturning it, because the companies that are now able to dump toxicity are now, you know, paying behind the doors uh, to to be able to for that privilege, you know, to get that turned over. Same thing could be said about Endangered Species Act. Why things are delisted? It's because extraction and ranching and farming gets their way. People are paid. Everyone gets a little money, and things go away. So anyway. Land of the free, my friends. Uh, okay, so let's uh, let's 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 move on here. God, I have so many points uh, in my notes that I just don't even know where to start. Oh, I want to hit briefly on CBD. So CBD now you can buy at the gas station and uh, at the grocery store, but uh, it's not all good. In fact, most of it I don't think is very good. I think it's uh, incredibly odd and 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 challenging to try to wade through what's what, and. I'm going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, there's one brand that I found. I do not have sponsorship. I'm not sponsored by them, but I, so let me give a little recap here. So when I got Lyme disease, I was sick for really acutely sick for a couple of years. And then I was kind of partially sick and I was, you know, I was trying every single treatment I could possibly get my hands on. And one of my Lyme doctors said to me, why are you not using CBD? And at the time I didn't know what CBD was. And the cover story of the National Geographic that month was about marijuana. And so this, there was a story of how CBD really came to be in the U.S. It was a, a, a bunch of brothers up in Colorado who made a strain called Charlotte's Web, and that's sort of how CBD landed. And so I was like, oh, okay. And so she connected me with a dispensary who was delivering me this 20-to-1 CBD paste, a paste. It was like glue that you would squirt very slowly into a uh, vaporizer, and then you, I would vape it. And this was the best CBD I've ever found in my life, right? And it was the first CBD I ever used. And the results and the effect was so profoundly positive, I just couldn't believe it. So suddenly the dispensary, one day they're gone. They don't take my phone calls. I can't find this stuff. And I'm like, well, I'll just go somewhere else. And fast forward to today, and that was probably four years ago, I've never been able to find this. So I was recently at an event. I met a young guy who's a performer, uh, former professional athlete, race car driver, Red Bull athlete, et cetera, and he's got his own CBD line. So he basically broke down how he got his line, where it came from, and who's doing the testing, and, and broke down for me and a couple of other people all the different levels of what CBD is and what the labeling actually means. And it was mind-blowing. I would have never, ever been able to figure this out on my own, let alone find a good brand or understand what I was reading or seeing. So I'm going to test his brand for a while. And I'm also going to give it to my mother. And I'm going to have her test it for a while and see, because I think CBD is one of those things that you have to use consistently. I think people expect it to be some sort of miracle drug, and it's not. It's something that you have to use consistently over time, and it will work well for some things and obviously not well for others. But for me, what happened immediately with vaping CBD was that the brain fog that I'd had for three and a half or four years with Lyme, which is absolutely and utterly 
so debilitating and and potentially even worse than the physical aspects. You know, when you're so exhausted you can't move, that's one thing. But when you can't shake those cobwebs in your head ever for year after year, it is so unnerving. And that's why so many Lyme patients talk about suicide and whatever else, because you just can't shake that brain fog. Five minutes after using CBD the first time, I, my something snapped in my head and I got clear. And I called the Lyme doc and said, you've got to be kidding me. There's no possible way this, is, this can work like that. And she said, yes, it can. And here's why. And she broke it down for me. And so I thought, holy cow. And this was, the CBD was like, I would say, two-thirds of the way through the battle back from Lyme. This was a key element of what was happening. And again, I grew up in the 80s. I grew up in the just say no. I grew up that marijuana was a gateway drug. And if you smoked at one time, you were going to be in a crack house 24 hours later. All of the BS that I was led to, you know, fed about the anti-drug stuff. And as you know, all the while, those same people were drinking 12 packs on the weekend, and that's totally fine. So I, I really had a different education about marijuana. I never touched it in high school. I never touched it in college. Um, and, and then when I finally did years later, I was like, oh, it was a letdown. It was such a, a letdown in comparison to what I thought it was going to be and how I you know, had been led to believe that it was just this um, you know, amazingly powerful drug. I was like, this is it? You know, when I smoked pot for the first time, CBD is amazing because there is no psychotropic effect. You're not getting high and you get these really amazing anti-inflammatory properties, which is the key for me with the Lyme disease. And as I get older, really working out athletics and et cetera, you know, my entire body feels inflamed about every three days. So anyway, and inflamed, not in a good way, people. I know, get your mind out of the gutter. Not in a good way. Uh, okay. I had a little interesting situation a while back. If you, and this is point 27, if you had come to me at any point in the last 30 years of my life and said, what do you want to do? What do you believe in? And what do you want to do? I would have been able to answer that question immediately. So last week, or maybe 10 days ago, a, mar a friend in from LA was in town and she's, uh, uh, she's a variety of things. She's a lawyer, she's an artist, and she's a marketer. And she asked me an interesting question. She asked what I was up to, and I was talking about AG23 and my stuff and the site and YouTube and all these other things. And she goes, what do you, what do you believe in and what do you want? And I could not answer. I said, I don't know, because my life goes now in 10 different directions instead of one direction. So I love Blurb. I love AG23. I love Shifter. I like, I'm liking the whole YouTube experience. Uh, I like cycling. I like bike life. I like all these different things. I honestly don't know. The only thing I could come up with was I want to know enough about a particular subject where I can, with confidence, turn around and tell you, and when I say you, I mean anyone listening to this podcast or reading this website, I can tell you with some level of confidence that this is a path you might want to take. And I'll give you an example. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of email newsletters as opposed to social media for photographers and for trying to sell books. I think the success rate with someone selling a book, if you have a, an, a legitimate database of people in a mailing list, they are much more likely to buy a book from you than someone on social media. And I've seen this proven a hundred times over. So I met with someone, I met a guy here in town probably two years ago. I read one of his books and I was like, I really like this guy. He's interesting. Maybe he'll meet with me. And he did. And so we hang out from time to time. And about six months ago, maybe even a little bit longer, I said, look, dude, you are you are dropping the ball because you of all people need to have a newsletter. 
And so he's like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You know, I'm newsletter, social media. I'm like, nope. I said, newsletter, newsletter. And me being a total pain in the ass, I just kept badgering him. And lo and behold, he started a newsletter and it's really good. And I ran into him and he comes up. I ran into him a couple days ago, Super Bowl Sunday. And he says, hey, I just landed an amazing gig because of the newsletter. And I, of course, danced in a circle and pointed, did the six guns and said, I told you, I told you, I told you. And so that's really cool to me. So when I talk about newsletters, I need to be able to do that myself, which I haven't done yet. So thank you for those of you who have signed up for the newsletter that I've never sent over the last, whatever, three years. So uh, like uh, quite a few people, I think, have signed up. I'm guessing like maybe three, four, five hundred people have signed up. At some point, I need to do this because then I can say firsthand, I created a newsletter. This is how many people signed up. This is how I use it. And this is why it works because I just want enough. Do I have some end game? No. Am I trying to sell you something right now? No. So the hardest part for me is I don't know what to put in a newsletter. Now, I did come up with an idea, um, but there's no hook at the end. So here's here's a theme and idea concept that I think everyone is going to like, and it's photography related. Uh, it'll be a single photograph and then a story. But and I think that's interesting, and I think it's relevant and different. I don't know anyone else who's doing this, but there's nothing on the back end like, hey, if you liked this uh, newsletter, buy my $30 you know, filter set for Instagram. I just don't have anything. And that's the when she said, what do you want? What do you believe in? I was like, I don't know. Uh, the sky's blue. It's snowing outside. I'm stuck. My van snowed in the driveway. I believe in that. But that's it. So that's kind of where I'm at. You may end up seeing a newsletter from me at some point in the near future. And uh, if you do, you're more than welcome to sign up, delete it. I know there's going to be a lot of people who signed up like three years ago that get it. And they're like, who is this asshole sending me these, uh, these things? Okay, the last thing we're going to talk about today, because we're at 33 minutes. The last thing is a story. And I forget what I told about. Oh, I told, last week's story was about the photographing in the sewers underneath Nogales, uh, Arizona, a lovely little spot. This week is not about an image in particular. This is about how I made a strategic move early on that, that allowed me to become a photographer. So my father uh, didn't really like photography. He didn't like photographers. He thought it was a hobby. He thought photography was a hobby. It wasn't a job. So I remember where I was, downtown San Antonio, on the interstate with my father, coming back from some shooting competition not photography, guns, but we're driving back and he looks at me out of the blue and says, um, I think you should be an investment banker. And I was like, what? What's an investment banker? And then he's telling me and I'm like, oh, that sounds horrible. It sounds like an office and a bunch of guys in ties and I don't, I don't really want to be around any of those people. So I just like nodded politely. That's what you do with your dad. You appease them. You choose your battles, right? And with dad, you could battle every single day. So I'm like, okay, whatever. So he goes, I'm going to do a little experiment. I'm going to teach you how to invest and then I'm going to create a bank account, and I'm going to put a little bit of money in that bank account, and you're going to take what I taught you, and you're going to invest it. I'm like, great, awesome, that sounds wonderful. And I'm just like playing along, because in the back of my head, I know that the San Antonio Camera Exchange has a used Leica M4P and a 28-2.8 lens that's just waiting for me. And I'm, so I'm like, I know what I'm going to do when I get that money. So he goes through, over the preceding weeks or the following weeks, he goes over all these investment tips and techniques. Now, here's the funny part. My father was not an investor. Where he got off thinking he was, I have no idea. So he was a business guy, but he was not an investor. And so I'm like playing along and I'm nodding and taking notes and wearing glasses and acting like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I'll study the trends and whatever he needs me to say, I'm saying. 
And then comes the countdown. So with much drama, and my father was very clumsy. So with, you know, kind of a clumsy way, he, he comes to me and says, well, it's official. Uh, the, the money is in the account, and now it's all on you. And I'm like, thanks. That's what I've been waiting to hear. And I promptly withdrew all, it was $2,000, I think, a little less than two, maybe, no, it was probably 2000 because the camera was just under that. And uh, I, I withdrew it all, and I drove to San Antonio Camera Exchange, and I bought my Leica M4P used and a 2828. And uh, he was pissed, to say the least. Um, imagine, have you ever seen films of Mount Vesuvius? That was kind of what was spraying out of his neck, like his head gasket blew, and there was uh, fluid flying all over. But uh, I waited for the storm to pass. I took cover. I took shelter. And uh, when the storm blew over, it, something changed in him. Because he realized I was not joking around, that this was not a hobby, that this was something that I was going to do with my life. And here's, here's what really tipped the balance, was my father's father was a newspaper columnist for 30 years. And he wrote a column in a, in a town in the Midwest, not a huge town, it was a city, there's industry there, etc. He was famous in that town. So you couldn't go anywhere with him without everybody saying, hey, Cliff, hey, Cliff, hey, Cliff, hey, Cliff. Everybody knew him. And I think it drove my father crazy because my grandparents, my dad's mom and dad, they were not good parents. They were incredibly strict. They treated him poorly. They didn't give him credit. They told him he would never amount to anything. They put him into military school. My dad was like a... He was like a, a turtle shell, man. He would, he would retract inside that shell, and you, he was impervious. So his parents did not do well with him. They were not a good parenting example. And so I think he, there was resentment about his father's probably lack of, of income, because newspaper columnists, you're never going to make a, a fortune, at least not a city that size. And so lack of income and also his celebrity. And celebrity, again, I'm, I'm, I'm using that word, but let's, let's be real. This is a small town in Midwest. It's not like, you know, it's not like you're J-Lo. So he, uh, he knew his father took that seriously. And that column influenced so many people. And uh, someone actually did a book about him year, years later where they re, uh, reprinted a lot of the columns or his most famous columns. And when you read them now, it's so simple. The writing is like so simple, but the stories are good. Uh, and as a case in point, when I was in college, I took a speech class where you had to get up and basically public speak the whole time. For whatever reason... Even though I'm, I'm an introvert and I prefer to be alone, I have no problem public speaking. I never have. I do it all the time now. I really enjoy it because most speakers suck. And if you get up and you don't suck, people are just so thrilled that you don't suck. It doesn't matter what you talk about. That's, that's my experience. So in speech class in college, we had to read something, a written piece that would invoke emotion in the audience. And so I chose a story that my grandfather wrote about a dog of his that was dying. And the dog would ride behind them in the car, and if they took a different route on the way home, the dog would start poking them in the back of the head because the dog knew the route in the car. And so this was this, this story about this dog, and then one day there's no one in the car with him. And I swear to God, I got done reading this. I looked up. Every student, man, woman, and child, were bawling, including the instructor. And I was like, holy cow. And that, to me, was another influential moment in my sort of journalism life where I was like, that is what I want. I want people to feel that way, that I want people to be happy. I want them to be sad. I want them to, I want to take the stories that I think are important and convey them with the camera and make people feel that way. Because if my gramps, gramps can do it, 
maybe I can do it too. So that is the recap. That is the end of our For What It's Worth this week. Uh, that was kind of long and rambling, but I think there's some good points in there. Um, check out this Finland PM. She's awesome. Make Try to make sure that you're making original work. Don't get pissed about defense attorneys. They're just doing their job. Uh, and let's try to... Uh, Let's try to be creative in this week moving ahead. I appreciate you being here, and I'll be back next week, hopefully from somewhere in the south along the border with another episode.